The talk I'm going to give you, it's the new mass, a reform or a revolution. Because all the official spokesmen for the church today keep talking about a reform. But I'm going to show you that it wasn't a reform, it was a revolution. And I'd better begin with an apology to those of you who have read a good number of my books, because most of what I say you'll already have read if you've read the books. But I was asked when I was coming here, I was told there'd be quite a number of people here who probably might even be coming for the first time. I won't ever have read any books at all on the new mass of the liturgical revolution. So I've made this a pretty basic talk. It, it would give an overall view of everything that's happened. So if it's familiar to a lot of you, I, I apologize for that. What I'm going to say is aimed primarily at what you could call a hypothetical Catholic who isn't entirely happy with the way that Mass is celebrated in a typical parish today, but who has taken at face value the assurance of his bishop and his pastors that the changes in the Mass that have followed Vatican II were mandated by the Council, that they are in perfect conformity with the principles of historic liturgical evolution, and that they have brought great pastoral benefits if you make any inquiries of our superiors in the church, they'll tell you those points time after time after time. So, as I said, I'm addressing this talk to a hypothetical Catholic who really accepts these statements at their face value, but is unhappy, nonetheless, with what has happened in the church since the Second Vatican Council. He might even believe that he's the only Catholic in the entire United States who isn't happy with the, what has happened since the Council. When uh, someone I met earlier this evening said they heard me in a debate on the William Buckley program, which took place in 1980 with a priest called Monsignor Champlin. Uh, William Buckley asked the hierarchy to get the greatest expert on the liturgy they could find to take part in this debate. And they said that this Monsignor Joseph Champlin was. Though if he's the greatest expert, what the rest must be like, I, I hate to think. Uh, but the program went out on a firing line, it went all over the country, and I got letters from people all over the United States and Canada who were absolutely delighted to watch this program because they, some of them thought they were insane. And they, they literally thought they were the only person in the entire United States who didn't think that everything was wonderful. And I think that's one of the principal benefits from an occasion like tonight when we can get together lots and lots of other people who think like ourselves and we know that we, are, know that we aren't crazy. Uh, was a little true story. This isn't a joke, it's a true story. It uh, actually took place at uh, Mass Centre I used to go to in London where Mass was celebrated by priests of the Society of St. Pius X. And a reporter from a national newspaper came along one Sunday and was interviewing people. I was listening, I was interested to hear what the people they were interviewing were saying. And there was a young lady reporter and she said to a gentleman who'd just come out, what would you say to the claim that all you people who come to this mass are paranoid? He said, young lady, with a church in its present state, anyone who isn't paranoid must be insane. So, <laughs> yeah, that's... That, that, that is absolutely true. But as I said, for these people, this was the first inkling that they had received that there was widespread discontent with what is known as the liturgical renewal. But what I shall now show to you has turned out to be a revolution. It's hardly surprising that people 
do not get the information that they need because the revolution that has taken place is endorsed by the entire Catholic establishment, which has a lock-tight grip on the Catholic media, which, as a rule, does not simply deny traditional Catholics the opportunity of making their case, but endeavours to ensure that the rest of the faithful do not so much as know that traditional Catholics exist. I intend to prove to you that the very composition of a new Mass is a break with tradition that the changes made in the traditional rite go far beyond what was authorized by the Second Vatican Council and in some instances actually contradict what the Council ordered. I shall show that we have been witnesses of a revolution rather than a reform and that it has been a revolution totally devoid of any good fruits. Before discussing the revolution it is necessary to be clear as to what is meant by a rite of mass. A rite of Mass consists of the words and ceremonies surrounding the essential elements instituted by our Lord. These essential elements are the matter, which is bread and wine, and the form, this is my body and this is my blood, and a validly ordained priest who intends to do what the Church does in this sacrament. There are many rites of Mass in the East and West recognized as valid by the Catholic Church, including, of course, all those used by the schismatic Orthodox churches. The same sacrifice, the sacrifice of Calvary, is made present in all these rites, and the same sacramental grace is obtained through them. Christ himself is received in Holy Communion. He cannot be received any more or any less perfectly in any particular rite, and the grace of Holy Communion is greater or less according to the devotion and the dispositions of the communicant, uh, ex operantis, as the theologians express it. Before discussing the liturgical revolution, it is also necessary to say a few words about whether a loyal Catholic can, in fact, criticize any teaching or legislation emanating from the Holy See and still claim to be loyal. See, many Catholics deny that. It's the type of... Catholic who reads The Wanderer will say once something is approved by the Pope it's not subject to criticism and so The Wanderer used to speak out very strongly against the abuse of communion in the hand or the abuse of communion being given under both kinds at Sunday Masses when this was forbidden by the Holy See but as soon as the Vatican surrendered to the rebels who had adopted these practices then they stopped criticizing it so you see their attitude is that things aren't intrinsically good or intrinsically bad in themselves, what makes something good or bad is whether or not the Pope approves of it. Now the Wanderer has been very strongly criticizing the practice of altar girls. It's quite possible, I hope it won't take place, but it's quite possible that the Pope will surrender on that issue before the end of the year. When that happens, the Wanderer will stop criticizing it. That, I think, is, is refusing to use our, our God-given intelligence. But as I said, these conservative Catholics, they consider anyone who criticizes anything that has received the Pope's approval is disloyal. And they compare them to the type of liberal theologian who, at the time when Humanae Vitae was uh, published, adopted the term of loyal dissent. These liberal or modernist theologians claimed that it was possible to dissent from papal teaching on faith and morals and remain a loyal Catholic. Such a claim is nonsensical. There can never be a right to dissent from the teaching of the magisterium on a question of faith or morals. 
The modernist concept of law descent in respect of doctrine can in no way be compared with the right, and I repeat, the right of a faithful Catholic to express disagreement with a prudential decision of the Pope. This distinction is made clear by quoting one of the most loyal and most erudite Catholics of this century, Professor Dietrich von Hildebrand, who was described by Pope Pius XII as the 20th century doctor of the church, not a 20th century doctor of the church, the 20th century doctor of the church, and who was honored by Pope Paul VI for his fidelity to the Holy See. In the devastated vineyard, which is a book that every Catholic who loves the church should own, a book whose title expresses perfectly the state of the church in the West since Vatican II, Professor von Hildebrand reminds us that Although we must accept everything promulgated ex cathedra by the Pope as absolutely true, and I quote him now, in the case of practical, as, as distinguished from theoretical authority, which refers of course to the ordinances of the Pope, the protection of the Holy Spirit is not promised in the same way. Ordinances can be unfortunate, ill-conceived, even disastrous, and there have been many such in the history of the church. Here, Roma locuta causa finita does not hold. The faithful are not obliged to regard all ordinances as good and desirable. They can regret them and pray that they be taken back. Indeed, they can work with all due respect for their elimination. <laughs> It is thus evident that a loyal Catholic has the right to express sincerely held reservations concerning certain aspects of the new missal. Even the most cursory reading of the conciliar constitution on the sacred liturgy makes it clear that the reform which it authorized was to be based on pastoral considerations. It was intended to clarify the nature of the mass for the faithful and enhance the quality of their participation. If members of the faithful are convinced in all sincerity that the new rite obscures rather than clarifies the sacrificial ethos of the Mass and makes their participation each Sunday an act of heroic obedience rather than joyful participation, they are entitled to express their misgivings to the Universal Father in Rome and to beg him to give them bread rather than stones. It might well be objected that the laity do not possess the knowledge or competence to justify them in criticizing a sacramental right approved by the Pope. There would be some weight to this argument if it transpired that the only critics of the new mass were laymen, but it has been denounced in the most radical manner possible by an ecclesiastic whose authority in matters of doctrine was second only to the Pope himself. I refer, of course, to the former prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Cardinal Ottaviani. In September 1969, a critical study of the new order of Mass prepared by a group of Roman theologians was presented to Pope Paul VI. The study itself is of less significance than the letter which accompanied it, which had been written by Cardinal Ottaviani and was signed by him and Cardinal Bacci. At least a dozen cardinals had agreed to sign the letter, but the other ten underwent a last-minute failure of nerve. These two cardinals of exemplary orthodoxy explained that they believed it to be their duty, in the sight of God 
and towards the Pope to make their misgivings known. They reminded the Pope that the subjects for whose benefit a law is passed have always had more than the right, the duty, if it should instead prove harmful of asking the legislator with filial trust for its abrogation. This is precisely the point made by Dietrich von Hildebrand, which I have just quoted to you. He said, the faithful are not obliged to regard all ordinances as good and desirable. They can regret them and pray that they can be taken back. And indeed, they can work with all due respect for their elimination. The historic judgment of the cardinals is that the new mass, and this is, these are their very words, the new mass considering the new elements susceptible of widely differing evaluations which appear to be implied or taken for granted represents as a whole and in detail a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the Mass which was formulated by Session 22 of the Council of Trent which, by fixing definitively the canons of the right, erected an insurmountable barrier against any heresy which might attack the integrity of the mystery. One would hope that no one in authority at any level in the church would suggest for one moment that Cardinal Ottaviani was ever at any time anything but totally loyal, or that he in any way lacked love for the church. And it seems equally reasonable to hope that laymen who echo the criticisms of Cardinal Ottaviani would not be accused of a lack of love for and loyalty to the church. A condemnation of such laymen constitutes a condemnation of Cardinal Ottaviani. And bear in mind that his specific mandate within the Vatican was to uphold orthodoxy. One of the most eminent liturgists of the second half of this century is the late Monsignor Klaus Gamber, who was a German. He was among the founders of the Liturgical Institute of Ratisbon in 1957 and its director until his death on the 2nd of June 1989 at the age of 70. Two books containing a number of his articles written between 1974 and 1978 were published in France in 1992 and 1993. Both have been combined into a single book for an English edition which actually has just appeared. It, it isn't on sale here today, but it, it is actually available now. Uh, it could be obtained through the Latin Mass magazine. However many books and pamphlets on the Mass you already have, you must buy this one. Actually, you'll find nothing in it that isn't contained in my own books. But it's a fact of life that the value of an argument is judged frequently, not so much on its intrinsic merit, but on who puts it forward. If, for example, you pointed out to a priest who is vandalizing the sanctuary in your parish church that in my book, Pope Paul's New Mass, or in my pamphlet, Mass Facing the People, it is explained that never in the history of the church in East or West uh, was Mass celebrated facing the people until the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council, he would reply, what does he know about it? He's just a layman. The fact that what I had written was perfectly true and is supported by irrefutable documentation would be considered irrelevant. But Monsignor Gamber cannot be dismissed in the same way. His exemplary scholarship prompted the Holy See to name him an honorary member of the Pontifical Academy of the Liturgy. In 1968 he was appointed a chaplain to the Holy Father and in 1966 a, a private chamberlain to the Holy Father. Cardinal Oddie wrote a preface to the book in which he described its publication as 
an event of the highest importance, and it also includes tributes to Monsignor Gamber by Cardinal Stickler and Cardinal Ratzinger. Shortly before the death of Monsignor Gamber, Cardinal Ratzinger remarked that he was the only scholar in the face of an army of pseudo-liturgists whose thought reflected faithfully the heart of the church's liturgy. So I'll just repeat that again. Cardinal Ratzinger said that Monsignor Gamber really was the only true scholar in the face of an army of pseudo-scholars. Just as nothing in the talk that I'm giving you this evening will go beyond the criticism of the new mass made by Cardinals Ottaviani and Bacci, nothing in it will go beyond that of Ms. Monsignor Gamba. And I'll give you a few examples of what he has to say. One is definitely obliged to accept that with the new liturgical forms, however well-intentioned they may have been, the faithful have been given stones in place of bread. Now, nobody here looked in the least surprised, you see, when I said that, because that's what you've all been thinking for years. It's what we all know. I'll just repeat it again. However well-intentioned the liturgical reforms may have been, the faithful have been given stones in place of bread. But you see, this, what is sensational about this is that this is written by one of the leading liturgists of this century and endorsed by three cardinals. I mean, at last... They've caught up with us. <laughs> right, I'll quote Monsignor, this is Monsignor Gamber again. Listen to this one. The new arrangement of the liturgy, and above all the profound modifications in the rite of mass which have occurred during the pontificate of Pope Paul VI and have now become obligatory, have been more radical than the reform of Luther, at least in what concerns the exterior rite. And again he writes, most of, because every diocese now has a whole bureaucracy of professional liturgists. What do you think they think of this? Or, or your bishop, if you put this to him. From the pastoral standpoint, most of the reforms have been useless. And you think about it, you see, the objective of these reforms, it was to you know, re-enliven the faith of every Catholic, bring, make lukewarm Catholics better Catholics, fervent Catholics into saints, and bring the lapsed Catholics back into the church in hordes. You should have, now after so many years, what is it, 75, 85? It's uh, about 28 years now since this, the Second Vatican Council. You should be finding it hard to get into your parish church on Sunday. They, they should be putting on extra masses every Sunday to accommodate all the, the new worshippers. What they've actually done, some of you may not know this, in many dioceses, the parish priests have been ordered to cut down the number of Sunday masses so you get more people at each Mass, and people don't realize how the Mass attendance is going down. I'm, I'm going to mention a figure later. When we had this terrible Latin Tridentine Mass in 1965, which nobody could understand and made everyone bored and stopped people wanting to go to church, you had something like 40 million Catholics going to Mass every Sunday in the United States. That's 40 million out of 50 million. Now, you get only 15 million out of the 50 million Catholics in the United States who go to Mass on Sundays. And yet this is supposed to have been a tremendous pastoral success. It's said even the Holy Father, when he writes about it, keeps talking about all the wonderful fruits of the liturgical renewal. He, he'll say, oh, there have been a few aberrations here and there, but it's bringing wonderful fruits. But as Monsignor Camber says, most of the reforms have been useless. Here he goes again. Is there truly behind all this a genuine concern for souls, 
Or is there not rather the desire, and this is really, he's putting it really strongly here, is there not rather the desire to create an irreparable breach between the old and the new rite, and thus to render impossible the celebration of the Tridentine Mass because it no longer corresponds to the new spirit predominating in the church? Well, that is precisely what it's done. If you took the average young Catholic of today who can be persuaded to go into a church, and that takes them doing it, in, in, in literally in most cases, in my country, only 10% of Catholic, young Catholics leaving Catholic high school continue going to Mass. 90% don't go anymore. And that's after being in a Catholic school from the age of 5 to the age of 18. But by the only worship they have attended being the new Mass, an irreparable breach has been created. If you took a typical young Catholic into a Tridentine Mass for the first time, it would mean no more to him than, it, than if he was at a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim uh, form of worship. It would just be totally incomprehensible to him. So in those few decades since Vatican II, they have literally succeeded in cutting off a whole generation of Catholics from their Catholic past, which is a horrifying thought. And Monsignor Gamber suggests that this was done deliberately. Again, he says, and this is something which we'll all agree with, it is necessary that in the future, the more than thousand-year-old rite of Mass should be preserved in the Roman Catholic Church as the primary form of the celebration of Mass. It is essential that it becomes once more the norm of faith and the sign of unity of Catholics throughout the entire world. So what Monsignor Gamba says, the only solution to the liturgical anarchy which we are witnessing at present is to bring back the Tridentine Mass as the norm. Now before beginning my actual critique of the new Mass, I'd better define precisely what I mean by the term new Mass within the context of what I'm saying to you this evening. Before I say that, I'll just say a quick word to you about what's known as the indefectibility of the Church. The church has a gift called indefectibility. Indefectibility means the inability to fail. And the Catholic Church, because it is divinely constituted, founded by our Lord Jesus Christ, can never fail in any of the essential aspects of the manner in which he constituted it. So, for example, the magisterium, that's the official teaching authority of the church, not what Matthew Fox or Charles Curran or Hans Kung think, or in many cases your local bishop. When the magisterium of the church teaches you something, you can be sure that it's true. And there has never been a case since the Second Vatican Council of the Pope or the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith teaching us anything that isn't true. In fact, whenever any great uh, dispute comes up about a matter of doctrine, either the Pope or the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith will issue a, a document affirming the traditional teaching. You got that, for instance, when a lot of the basic truths of the creed were being uh, questioned and Pope Paul VI brought out his credo of the people of God. The truth of the real presence in the Eucharist was being questioned and Pope Paul VI brought out his wonderful encyclical Mysterium Fidei, which could have been written by St. Pius V, St. Pius X, or even Archbishop Lefebvre. You can't fault it. When the question of contraception came up, after a lot of prevaricating, the Pope brought out his encyclical Humanae Vitae, which upheld the teaching of the Church as strongly as it ever had been done. Uh, here's a little instance, though, where you can see, 
you see the example of, of, of a prudential decision of a pope and the mixture of divine and human in the church. Now, as I said to you, the indefectibility of the church will prevent any pope from ever teaching error. But it doesn't mean he will always teach the truth when he should teach it. It doesn't actually mean in a time of crisis he'll come out and teach the church the truth at all. He could just remain silent. And he can make a wrong prudential decision which can do enormous harm. And Pope Paul VI, the moment the teaching of the church on contraception began to be questioned, should have reaffirmed the traditional teaching immediately. But he prevaricated for years and people got the impression, encouraged by a lot of theologians in their countries, that there was going to be a change in the teaching. And unfortunately, many of them adopted their practice to this anticipated change. And then when no change was made, because no change could be made, they were shocked by this and abandoned the teaching of the church. Many of them abandoned the church altogether. So you see, there you see the prudential decision of the Pope to, to open an inquiry in, into the question of contraception and wait years and years before making his decision. Here you see the divine protection of the church, the indefectibility of the church, the inability of the church to fail in the Pope affirming the traditional teaching in the face of the opposition of the entire world. I would by the way, like to remind you of the fact that the Catholic Church is opposed to contraception, it isn't opposed to birth control. As G.K. Chesterton expressed it very well, he said where contraception is used there's no birth and no control. That's because people often you know, speak as, as if the Catholic Church you know, expected every Catholic woman to have a baby every year. That's not, that's not the teaching at all. So, as I said, this doctrine of the indefectibility obliges us to believe that no pope will ever teach or approve anything that is harmful for the church or anything that could undermine the validity of any sacramental right. You see, the church will always teach what is true and it will give us the grace we need to live up to that teaching. And to live up to that teaching, we need the grace of the sacraments. So if, for example, a pope promulgated a sacramental right that was invalid, then the faith would be cut off from sacramental grace, and really the church would have failed. It would have meant our Lord had made promises that he couldn't keep, which would have meant that he wasn't divine, which would mean our whole Catholic faith was a mockery. Now, that means that the new mass which Pope Paul VI promulgated was definitely valid, contained no heresy, and couldn't include anything that was actually harmful to the faithful. But it's only the Latin version promulgated by the Pope which is protected by the indefectibility of the Church. In the Latin version, for example, in the words of consecration, it says pro, it says pro maltis, as, as has always been the case in the Church. The, the, the words of consecration haven't been changed in, in, that, in that respect. This protection isn't extended to vernacular translations. The reason being, there are thousands of vernacular translations of sacramental rites throughout the world, and the Pope cannot possibly know every language in the world. And when the Pope approves the English translation, or the Swahili translation, or the Hindi translation, all it means is that he believes the bishops of that country have checked to see that the translation is accurate, which very often will not be the case. So I'm not talking about the Latin Missal, when I criticize the New Mass, although the Latin Missal has many, many faults, it's vastly inferior to the Tridentine Mass, what I'm referring to in, in this talk this evening is to a typical celebration of Mass 
in an English-speaking parish today without actual abuses. That is to say, without practices still forbidden by the Holy See, such as altar girls or dancing girls, but one which will incorporate practices which once constituted abuses, such as communion in the hand or communion under both kinds on Sundays, and they were eventually authorized by the Holy See as an act of surrender to a fait accompli. Now, the first point I want to make about the new Mass, and this includes the Latin version and the vernacular version, is that the very composition of a new Mass, a novus ordo misse, which means a new order of Mass, constitutes a break with historic liturgical evolution. This has never happened before in the history of the Church. In his classic study of the Mass, Father Adrian Fortescue explained that, and I quote Father Fortescue now, the Protestant reformers naturally played havoc with the old liturgy. It was throughout the expression of the very ideas, the real presence, Eucharistic sacrifice, and so on, they rejected. So they substituted for it new communion services that expressed their principles, but of course broke away utterly from all historic liturgical evolution. How precisely did the Protestant reformers break away utterly from all historic liturgical evolution? They did so firstly, as I've just said, by the very fact of composing new sacramental rites and substituting them for those which had been in use from time immemorial. This would have involved a break with historic liturgical evolution even if their new rites had been totally orthodox. The different rites of mass in use throughout the church in east or west had evolved gradually and naturally over the centuries. There was never a question of any, any pope or any patriarch in east or west getting a group of so-called liturgists together. We never used to have liturgists. They're an invention of, of Vatican II. Getting a group of liturgists together and saying, let's compose a rite of mass, let's compose a rite of ordination. The different sacramental rites evolved gradually and naturally over the centuries. One of Britain's greatest living historians, Professor Owen Chadwick, who's a Protestant, noted in his book, The Reformation, that liturgies are not made. They grow in the devotion of centuries. A consistent pattern can be discerned in the development of every ancient liturgy in both East and West a pat pattern which ex is explained very clearly by a very great English theologian, Canon G.G. G. Smith, in, in a very, very great book called The Teaching of the Catholic Church. If you ever get a chance to buy this book secondhand, you should grab it at once. This is what Canon Smith says. Throughout the history of the development of the sacramental liturgy, the tendency has been towards growth, additions and accretions, the effort to obtain a fuller, more perfect symbolism. So, of course, the liturgy developed. The Catholic Church is a living religion. It isn't static. And as the centuries passed, the very, very simple ceremony that took place in the upper room on Holy Thursday developed. It developed in a similar pattern, but there were divergencies in the different parts of the church. But as Canon Smith said all the time, the development consisted of additions, things that made the, symbol of the symbolism of the rite more clear and more perfect. In 1896, Pope Leo XIII pronounced finally and irrevocably in his encyclical, Apostolic Curie, 
that Anglican orders are invalid. The Anglican bishops attempted to refute Pope Leo's encyclical with what they termed a responsio, which was published in 1897. This responsio was refuted by the Catholic bishops in a vindication of the encyclical Apostolicae Curiae published in 1897. And I'm mentioning this to you because in their refutation of the Anglican bishops, they used some words which we could apply almost directly to the new rite of mass. This was what they said. That in earlier times, local churches were permitted to add new prayers and ceremonies is acknowledged, but that they were also permitted to subtract prayers and ceremonies in previous use and even to remodel the existing rites in the most drastic manner is a proposition for which we know of no historical foundation and which appears to us absolutely incredible. Now, the new rite of mass was not drawn up by the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. Everybody here knows that, of course, but people who complain are often told if you object to the new rite of mass, you're contesting what was approved by the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. All they did, up, did was to draw up a few general principles, and when the council was over, the, refor the actual reform was delegated to a committee. The, the Latin word for a committee or a body of learned men is a concilium. We can call it a commission, and this commission was set up to implement the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. And one cannot contest that this concilium subtracted, and I'm paraphrasing now, the criticism by the English bishop, Catholic bishops, of the Anglican bishops. This commission subtracted many of the prayers and ceremonies in previous use and remodeled the existing rite in a most drastic manner thus breaking away utterly from all historic liturgical evolution. So this was the first time that anything like this had happened in the history of the Catholic Church, or in any church that can trace its origins back to apostolic times, which includes all the Orthodox churches. If you ask a Russian Orthodox priest or bishop, or a Greek Orthodox priest and bishop, if they've ever had their liturgy drastically reformed, he'd look at you in, in total bewilderment. The idea of doing this wouldn't occur to them. Please note that I'm not claiming that the new Mass is unorthodox in any way, or that Pope Paul VI did not have the strict legal right to approve a drastic remodeling of the existing right. All that I'm claiming is that in doing this, he broke away utterly from all historic liturgical evolution. My claim that the very composition of a new mass, a Novus Ordo Misse, constitutes a break with historic liturgical evolution could be refuted by demonstrating that the composition of the new mass did not involve a drastic remodeling of the existing rite. The fact that such a claim would be totally untenable is proved beyond any reasonable doubt in the detailed analysis of the changes made in the traditional rite, which you can find in my book, Pope Paul's New Mass. Uh, if you look at the back of it, it's got in parallel columns the changes made by the concilium, which reformed the Tridentine Mass, with the changes made by Archbishop Thomas Cranner, who reformed the Latin Mass in use in England in the 16th century. And you'll find that virtually every prayer and ceremony which he expunged from the traditional Mass has been expunged from the Tridentine Mass by the, by the post-conciliar concilium. 
Incredible as it may seem, there are those who in their eagerness to defend the new mass put reason aside and actually claim that no remodeling of the Tridentine mass took place that could be condemned as drastic. They say the modeling was very minor and incidental. A typical instance of the failure to accept reality occurred in an article by Father Peter Stravinskas in the February 1992 issue of Catholic News and World Report. Father Stravinskas claimed that, having studied the old rite of the Mass and the present rite with great care, I failed to see any significant difference between the two. Uh, this reminds me of a comment made by the Duke of Wellington to a gentleman who approached him and said, Mr. Smith, I believe. If you believe that, said the Duke of Wellington, you'll believe anything. <laughs> and all any, anyone here has to do to refute what Father Stravinska said is simply to get out your Tridentine Missal and put it side by side with the order of mass in the new missal and compare the two rites. And I said to, it, to, to say that there's no significant difference between the two rites is totally amazing, yet Father Stravinskas claims to be an, a, a liturgical expert. And I don't think any reasonable person could contest that to claim that there is no significant difference between the two rites is not simply unreasonable but totally incredible. Rather than quote from a traditionalist writer to refute Father Stravinskas, I will cite one whose credentials for commenting upon the new Mass could hardly be more authoritative. I refer to Father Joseph Gellinau, SJ. Father Gellinau was one of the most influential members of the Concilium of Archbishop Bunini, which composed the new Mass. Archbishop Bunini was really the guiding spirit between the whole of the liturgical reform. Archbishop Unini described Father Gellinau, who was a French Jesuit, as one of the great masters of the international liturgical world. So, he's a person who helped compose the new mass, he helped to impose it in France after the council, and he's always defended it very consistently. So he's a person who obviously knows what he's talking about. It would be more than euphemistic to state that Father Gellinau does not share the opinion of Father Stravinskas that there is no significant difference between the Tridentine Mass and the New Mass. In his book, Demain la Liturgie, which means tomorrow the liturgy or the liturgy of tomorrow, Father Gellinau commented with commendable honesty and not the least sign of regret these words. Let those who, like myself, have known and sung a Latin Gregorian High Mass remember it, if they can. Let them compare it with the mass that we now have. Not only the words, the melodies, and some of the gestures are different. To tell the truth, and it's nice to see a representative of the conciliar church who wants to tell the truth, but to continue. To tell the truth, it is a different liturgy of the mass. This needs to be said without ambiguity. The Roman rite, as we knew it, no longer exists. I'll even quote that in French for you, if you'll excuse my accent. Le rite romain tel que nous l'avons connu n'existe plus. It has been destroyed. Il est détruit. So Father Gallinau assures us that the traditional rite of mass has been destroyed, and he is one of the principal destroyers of the traditional mass, so he should know. And he says that it has been replaced by one that is different. Father Stravinskas assures us 
that there is no significant difference between the two rights. Almost every priest and every bishop you might meet in the United States will assure you that there is no significant difference between the two rights. An impartial examination of the reform in which Father Gellinow played so active a part will prove beyond any possible doubt that his assessment, and not that of Father Stravinskis, is correct. But before examining the actual reform, it is necessary to be clear as to precisely what the liturgy constitution of the Second Vatican Council mandated, as it is indisputable that the Second Vatican Council was followed by a reform far more radical than that envisaged by the Council Fathers or authorized by the Council's liturgy constitution. Now, anyone who would actually like to get a copy of the Council Liturgy Constitution can find it in a book called The Conciliar and Post-Conciliar Documents, edited by an Irish Dominican called Father Austin Flannery. Uh, if you don't want to spend a lot of money and get that whole book, most of the quotes from the Constitution that I'm going to give you, you'll find them in the back of a little pamphlet I've written called The Liturgical Revolution, which has some very, very good little cartoons in it. Uh, uh, yeah, which makes it more interesting for, for people if you're giving it to someone to get them interested in the Tridenta Mass. You remember in Alice in Wonderland, Alice says, what's the good of a book without pictures? So if you want to get any of these points, the actual quotes and the paragraph numbers can be found in my little pamphlet, The Liturgical Revolution. Now, as I said, by no possible stretch of the imagination can the liturgy constitution of the Second Vatican Council be interpreted as mandating or sanctioning the destruction of the Roman Rite. It contains stipulations which appeared to make any drastic remodeling of the traditional mass impossible. It commanded, it didn't suggest, it commanded that the Latin language was, was to be preserved in the Latin rites, Article 36. It stated that steps were to be taken to ensure that the faithful could sing or say together in Latin those parts of the Mass that pertain to them. That's Article 54. Well, you should know, in your parish is the parish priest taking steps to ensure that every member of his parish can sing or say together in Latin all the parts of the Mass that pertain to them. Uh, such as the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei. If he is doing that, he's quite an unusual parish priest. All lawfully acknowledged rites, stated the Council, were to be held of equal authority. And listen to this. Every rite of the Catholic Church was to be preserved in the future and fostered in every way. Yet, as Father Gellinow says, instead of fostering and preserving the Tridentine rite in every way is being destroyed. Gregorian chant was to be given pride of place in liturgical services. Well, again, is Gregorian chant given pride of place in all the liturgical services in your parish? In uh, a lot of churches, you're more likely to hear something by Elvis Presley than by the than, than, than Gregorian chant. The Council Constitution ordered this. It said there are to be no innovations unless the good of the Church genuinely and certainly required them. And care was to be taken that any new forms adopted should grow in some way organically from forms already existing. See, it's a pity that most Catholics, including most traditional Catholics, have never actually read the Liturgy Constitution. So when they're told by their parish priest, oh, the Council ordered this, uh, they believe him. It's useful to be able to quote these things back at them. Now, I'll just repeat 
This one from Article 23 again. No innovations unless the good of the church genuinely and certainly requires them. That rules out the fact that you can't even bring in a change that would have improved the Mass if such a change is possible. Because as, as uh, you remember, Father Frederick Faber said the Tridentine Mass was the most beautiful thing this side of heaven. So to imagine that one could improve it w w would denote incredible arrogance. Dietrich von Hildebrand mentioned that. He said the idea that the men of this century could produce a more beautiful rite of mass that, that one had than one that had developed over thousands of years under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost is, is absolutely incredible. But anyway, no innovations unless the good of the church genuinely and certainly requires them. Will you think of the changes that have been made in the mass? Did the good of the church genuinely and certainly require that... Uh, we should get rid of the, the Psalm Eudicame, the Intro Ibad Altari Dei. Did it require that we should get rid of the two confiteors, one by the priest and one by the people, showing that the role of the priest in the Mass was totally distinct from the role of the people, and have just one little confiteor where we're all brothers and sisters and sinners together, and the priest just asked that God will forgive us our sins? Did the good of the church genuinely and certainly require that we should stop? genuflecting at the incarnatus est in the creed. Think of that one for a moment. The most important event that has happened in the entire history of the world was when our blessed mother said, Fiat mihi secundum verbum tuum, be it done to me according to thy word, and God who had existed from all eternity became incarnate in her womb that opened the gates of heaven to us once more. The whole history of the world was changed. Now, the, all heresies eventually end up with the denial of the incarnation, the denial that God became man. As I said, it's the most important event that has taken place in the whole of human history. That's why we genuflected at it. There are heretics who deny this, which is why the church brought in the practice of genuflecting. Well, are you yourselves, or your children, or your neighbours, are any Catholics that you know better Catholics today because they've stopped genuflecting at the Incarnatus? If you answer no to that, then whoever abolished that genuflection has deliberately disobeyed the Second Vatican Council. I could go right through the whole new rite of Mass now, right up to the last Gospel. The last Gospel is possibly the most inspiring passage ever written in the history of the human race. Every time you read that gospel, as the priest reads it at the end of Mass, you, you can get some new insight. Are any of us better Catholics? Are our children better Catholics? Are our neighbours better Catholics? Because we no longer have the last gospel. You see that we're accused of being disobedient to the Council. We're not. There's colossal disobedience to the Council. But the disobedience to the Council is on the part of those who ignored what it taught who contradicted what it taught, and who brought in this new Mass, which, as I said, is a total break with the entire historic liturgical evolution of the Church. As I said to you, the Council commanded that the Latin language was to be preserved in the Latin rites, but it's virtually vanished. And not the least effort is being made in 99.9% .9 of parishes to see that the faithful know so much as a single word of Latin, let alone all the parts that pertain to them. And as I've just said, and I'll repeat it again, far from preserving and fostering the Roman rite as the council ordered, it has been destroyed. And the treasury of mu sacred music, Gregorian chant in particular, has all but been forgotten.
And this is what is most serious. In almost every change that's been made in the Tridentine Mass, a form of Mass has resulted which is far more acceptable to Protestants. There's a whole very sinister ecumenical implication in all the reforms. When the Council Fathers voted for the Liturgy Constitution, they did not imagine the manner in which it would be interpreted. This is because the Pariti, or, or experts, who drafted the text had inserted ambiguous passages into it, which they intended to use after the Council to implement a liturgical revolution which they knew would not be sanctioned by the Council Fathers if spelled out exactly in the Constitution itself. Lest it be thought that this is no more than a wild allegation by a layman addicted to conspiracy theories, I'll give you the testimony of Cardinal John Heenan of Westminster, England. Cardinal Heenan was one of the most active of the Council Fathers, and in his book, A Crown of Thorns, he wrote concerning the first session of the Council in 1962, and listen to this, this is Cardinal Heenan I'm quoting, the subject most fully debated was liturgical reform. It might be more accurate to say that the bishops were under the impression that the liturgy had been fully discussed. In retrospect, it is clear that they were given the opportunity of discussing only general principles. Subsequent changes were more radical than those intended by Pope John and the bishops who passed the decree on the liturgy. His sermon at the end of the first session shows that Pope John did not suspect what was being planned by the liturgical experts. What could be more clear than this? Cardinal Heenan states explicitly that the experts who drafted the liturgy constitution intended to use it after the council in a manner that the Pope and the council fathers did not suspect. That incidentally is what is known as a conspiracy. <laughs> If the Council Fathers had been told that this was happening, most of them would have dismissed such a possibility as incredible, even if it had been explained to them. Commenting with the benefit of hindsight in 1973, Archbishop R.J. Dwyer of Portland, Oregon, remarked sadly, Who dreamed on that day that within a few years, far less than a decade, the Latin past of the church would be all but expunged, that it would be reduced to a memory fading into the middle distance. The thought of it would have horrified us, but it seemed so far beyond the realm of the possible as to be ridiculous, so we laughed it off. Father Louis Bouillet, a French oratorian who unfortunately has died, died a few months ago, was an, extend, uh, an outstanding figure in the pre-conciliar liturgical movement, and he was one of the most orthodox pariti or experts of the council. Not all the experts of the council were unorthodox, and he was able to see the direction that the reform was taking even before the promulgation of the new mass. He stated in 1969, and listen to this, there is practically no liturgy worthy of the name today in the Catholic Church and that, perhaps in no other area, is there a greater distance and even formal opposition between what the Council worked out and what we actually have. Well, like Monsignor Gamba, who I mentioned to you earlier, 
Father Louis Bouillet is, is, is a liturgist of outstanding reputation. And that's a really radical statement. There's practically no liturgy worthy of the name in the Catholic Church today. You go into any typical parish church in the United States today, any typical parish church in England, France, Germany, Belgium, Holland, and see if you can find a liturgy that's worthy of the name. Remember what the Mass is. The Mass is our Lord Jesus Christ himself making present the very sacrifice of Calvary in which he offered his life to atone to the Father, his Father in heaven for our sins and to redeem us. That's what's taking place. Would you really believe that was taking place if you went into a typical parish church today? No. Father Bouillet is right. There's hardly any liturgy worthy of the name today in the Catholic Church, except, of course, in traditionalist churches and chapels where the Tridentine Mass is offered. Uh, Uh, one would have to add here, of course, we're talking about the Roman rite, the rite to which we belong. The Eastern liturgies, of course, as far as I know, still haven't been reformed or mutilated in any significant manner. So if you went... Uh, this, this week I had the pleasure for the first time in my life of going to an Armenian Mass, which was very inspiring. You can go to the Byzantine Masses. Uh, there are quite a few Eastern Rite churches in the United States, so their liturgy, of course, is still worthy of the name. It seems perfectly legitimate, therefore, to describe what has taken place in the Roman Rite since Vatican II as a revolution rather than a reform. The concise Oxford Dictionary defines a revolution as follows. And see if you agree this is what's happened to the liturgy. A revolution is a complete change, a turning upside down, a great reversal of conditions, or a fundamental reconstruction. Is this not precisely what has taken place in the Roman liturgy since the Second Vatican Council? The revolutionary nature of the changes in the Roman liturgy has been apparent even to non-Catholics. At the Harvard Club in New York on the 11th of May 1978, Peter L. Berger, who is a Lutheran professor of sociology, so he's a man whose testimony is very important. First of all, he's a Protestant, which means we have to take notice of it, and second, he's a sociologist. So his, and we might not have to listen to Archbishop Lefebvre, after all, what was he? But this man is a Protestant sociologist. But listen to what he says. There were two extraordinary changes imposed on the Catholic community in areas where the authorities could have moved much more circumspectly. The liturgical revolution, no other term will do, is the most important case in point touching millions of Catholics at the very core of their religious life. Let me mention the sudden abolition and indeed prohibition of the Latin Mass, the transposition of the officiating priest from the front to the back of the altar, the first change, that's the abolition of the Latin Mass, symbolically diminishing the universality of the Mass, the second is transcendent reference and the massive assault on a wide variety of forms of popular piety. Now listen to what Professor Berger says. He says that these changes were a mistake even from a sociological standpoint. He said, if a thoroughly malicious sociologist bent on injuring the Catholic Church as much as possible had been an advisor to the Church, he could hardly have done a better job. 
Uh, Malcolm Muggridge once mentioned, he said, if the Catholic bishops stationed people outside their churches with whips to drive them away when they tried to get in, they couldn't have done it more effectively than they did with the liturgical reform. <laughs> Uh, Professor von Hildebrand was even more radical. He said, truly, if one of the devils in C.S. Lewis, the screw-tape letters, had been entrusted with the ruin of the liturgy, he could not have done it better. Uh, now I want to quote Father Joseph Gullinow to you again, because his testimony to the fact that the liturgical revolution which followed the council went far beyond what the council fathers intended must surely be conclusive. This is what Father Gullinow says. It would be false to identify this liturgical renewal with the reform of rites decided on by Vatican II. This reform goes back much further and goes forward far beyond the conciliar prescriptions. The liturgy is a permanent workshop. La liturgie est un chantier permanent. So there we have it. In place of the moderate reform sanctioned by the liturgy constitution, the mass of the Roman Rite, surely the Church's greatest treasure apart from the Scriptures themselves has been reduced on a practical level to a permanent liturgical workshop, something done by the people rather than an action of Christ. This is a fact accepted by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger who commented, today we might ask, is there a Latin Rite anymore? Certainly there is no awareness of it. To most people, the liturgy appears to be rather something for the individual congregation to arrange. And in many, if not most, parishes in your country today, they have liturgical committees that prepare the liturgy. Often the priest doesn't even get a say in them. Uh, I've got to be careful, as the majority of people here seem to be ladies, but most of them seem to be dominated by women. And, uh, uh, no. And I've worked in a school for nearly 30 years where I was the only male member of the staff. I know that when, once ladies dominate anything, no man, even if he's a parish priest, is likely to get a look in. And they bring out all their own little fantasies and quirks uh, in the Mass on It's something for them to experiment with. It is indeed, as Father Galeno said, it's a permanent liturgical workshop. In an appeal addressed to the American hierarchy in 1979, Father Kenneth Baker, editor of the Homiletic and Pastoral Review, a magazine which is well worth subscribing to, he complained of the hundreds of changes imposed on the people, which they hardly had time to digest, and begged for a halt to be called to the liturgical revolution. This is what Father Baker said. We have been overwhelmed with changes in the church at all levels, but it is the liturgical revolution which touches all of us intimately and immediately. But there appears, alas, to be no hope at all of a halt being brought to the changes or effective steps taken to remove any of the abuses. You know, one could say, was it President Nixon and President Reagan said, you ain't seen nothing yet? And that's what your professional liturgists would tell you, because at the moment, they're making a drastic revision of the English text of the Mass in the interest of inclusive language and also of getting rid of any little parts that even have a vestige of Catholicism left in them, like the Orati Fratres, for example. They want to mutilate the translations of that so there's nothing recognisable as Catholic anymore. And that is what they're trying to impose on you next. You see, a permanent liturgical workshop. They're never going to stop. 
And one reason why they can't stop is they got very good jobs and very good salaries. And once they stopped, they'd be out of a job and have to go and do parish work, visit the poor, visit the homeless, comfort the bereaved. <laughs> Apparently, even Cardinal Mahoney of Los Angeles is horrified by this new translation of the Mass. <laughs> what it must be like if he's horrified, it boggles the mind. But, unfortunately, once an abuse becomes institutionalized, it, it becomes accepted as the norm by most of the faithful who still assist at Mass on Sunday. The extent of these abuses was so widespread by 1980 that Pope John Paul II felt obliged to make a public apology to the faithful in his apostolic letter, Dominicae Cheney. This is one of the most astonishing statements made in the whole history of the Church. So the trouble is even... Traditional Catholics, we become too blasé. Something happens that's shocking, unprecedented. And we say, oh yes. You imagine a Pope saying this. This is what the Pope himself said to us. Because of what we have to put up with in our churches on Sunday. And this apology, by the way, was supposed to come to us in the name of all the bishops as well. Uh, but I don't think many of the bishops really associated themselves with the Pope. I would like to ask forgiveness in my own name and in the name of all of you venerable and dear brothers in the Episcopate for everything which, for whatever reason, through whatever human weakness, impatience or negligence, and also through the at times partial, one-sided and erroneous applications of the directives of the Second Vatican Council may have caused scandal and disturbance concerning the interpretation of the doctrine and the veneration due to this great sacrament. Has ever a Pope needed to speak such words in the entire history of the Roman Church, the Church that is the mother and mistress of all other churches? And have matters improved since this astonishing apology? No, they have worsened with every year that passes. The liturgical revolution has indeed, as Father Baker observed, touched the faithful intimately and immediately and in a manner which has disturbing parallels, as I mentioned to you earlier, with the way that Thomas Cranmer, the apostate Archbishop of Canterbury, destroyed the faith of English Catholics. He, he did not destroy their faith by indoctrinating them with Protestant teaching. There was no way to do so because there were no radio, no TV, no newspapers, no schools. He indoctrinated them through the Sunday liturgy. He indoctrinated them with Protestantism by forcing them to worship each Sunday with a Protestantized liturgy. He used a liturgical revolution to implement a doctrinal revolution. This is explained very clearly by Monsignor Philip Hughes in his History of the Reformation. I'm going to quote to you what Monsignor Hughes says about what Cranmer did, destroying the faith of the English people through the liturgy. And you see, if you don't agree, this could be said to the faith of many, many people in your country. This prayer book of 1549 was as clear a sign as man might desire that a doctrinal revolution was intended and that it was indeed already in progress. Once these new sacramental rites, for example, had become the habit of the English people, the substance of the doctrinal reformation victorious now in Northern Europe, would have transformed England also. All but insensibly, as the years went by, 
the beliefs enshrined in the old and now disused rites and kept alive by these rites in men's minds and affections would disappear without the need of any systematic missionary effort to preach them down. Does this seem familiar to you? Would you say that the beliefs enshrined, shall we say, in the Tridentine Mass, that the Mass is primarily a solemn sacrifice, the making present of the sacrifice of Calvary, is this what any typical high school child would say today if you asked them what the Mass was? No, it wouldn't. And their belief in the true nature of the Mass has vanished by worshipping in liturgies that make what the Mass means nowhere apparent. This is an illustration of a principle long enshrined in Catholic theology, lex orandi, lex credendi, which means basically the law of prayers, the law of belief, uh, which can be translated very roughly as meaning the manner in which we pray reflects what we believe, and that, therefore, if the way we pray is changed, what we believe will change also. And this is happening today has change in our liturgical rites been followed by a change in the beliefs and the behavior of the Catholic people? It would certainly seem to be the case if we believe what Father Kenneth Baker wrote in the editorial to the November 1991 issue of the Homiletic and Pastoral Review. This is what Father Baker says about the state of Catholicism in your country, and you can judge whether this is true. With each year that passes, it seems that we get closer to an American church separate from Rome. For millions of Catholics, it already exists in fact, though not yet officially, de facto but not de jure. Even though the entrenched bureaucracy will not admit it, the church here is in bad shape. There has been a loss of morale and élan. But what should one expect when most Catholic children do not know the basics of their faith? when heresy is openly taught and defended in Catholic universities, when seminarians have declined from about 48 million... Sorry, that would have been wonderful, wouldn't it? You'd have had more, more priests than lay people. Uh. Now, in 1965, there are 48,000 seminaries. Now your bishops have instituted what is known as the renewal of seminary life. You see, the way the seminaries were organized, alienated intelligent young men. So they had to dress up in cassocks and sing hymns in, Catholic, in, in Latin and read things by people written centuries ago, like St. Thomas Aquinas, all this. Who would want to be a seminarian if you did that? So it made it modern and relevant. And instead of the 48,000 Catholics, boys in seminaries in 1965, you now have 5,000. There are 43,000 less. Those are the refute the fruits of the seminary renewal. But to go back to Father Baker, and when only 14 million out of 55 million Catholics go to church regularly on Sunday, it is not an exaggeration to say that the church here is in a crisis. The crisis is not, of course, confined to the United States, but, ex but exists with precisely the same manifestations throughout the entire Western world. In countries such as Holland, it seems reasonable to ask whether anything substantial now exists that could be described as Catholicism. So far from filling our churches with renewed, revitalized Catholics, many of them previously lapsed, but brought back to the faith by a wonderful new liturgy that they could understand, we have witnessed a catastrophic decline in mass attendance in almost every Western country, 
We are, Father Louis Boyer assures us, witnessing not the renewal, but the accelerating decomposition of Catholicism. And as I mentioned to you earlier, he says that in the Roman Rite, to which I should imagine almost everyone here today belongs, in the Roman Rite there no longer exists any liturgy worthy of the name. Tens of millions, and I'll repeat that, tens of millions of Catholics who went to Mass in the bad old days when the liturgy was supposed to have alienated them from the Church have ceased attending now. And yet, according to those in authority, it has been a tremendous pastoral success and we are all deliriously happy with it. You go along and complain to your parish priest or your bishop and say the reform has not been a success, and they'll think you're crazy or a crank. They'll just laugh at you, and they won't even want to answer you or speak to you. Archbishop Unini, the great architect of the liturgical revolution, commented in all seriousness, it would appear, that the renewed mass was received with joy, with enthusiasm, and in a short time entered into the practice of the Christian people with obvious advantages to the community. Well, if I may quote the Duke of Wellington again, if you believe that, you'll believe anything. No, by their fruits you shall know them, a fructibus eorum cognoscetis eos. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and the evil tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can an evil tree bring forth good fruit. Where are the songs of spring, asked the English poet Keats, I where are they? And where are the fruits of the liturgical renewal? I where are they? You see, people sometimes tell me I'd make more of an impression if I wasn't so extreme. They say, when you talk about Vatican II, say, mention all the benefits it's brought, then criticize the aspects you know, that, that, that are open to question. But I believe in being radical. Radical, you know, it comes from a Latin word meaning radix, the root you get down to the roots. And I say there are no good fruits whatsoever from Vatican II or from the liturgical reform. If, if anyone can think of any, I'd like to hear them. And the people who've written to me like that, I've asked them to write back with good fruits. And they say something like, oh, the wonderful ecumenical understanding that's going on now. All that means is we've joined together with non-Catholics and substituting a cafeteria, wishy-washy religion for Catholicism. So they're all, they're all abstruse, the, these good fruits. There's nothing concrete. Every aspect of Catholic life that is subject to statistical verification has been subject to an abysmal decline since the Second Vatican Council. That's a fact. So how can people talk about good fruits? Uh, as they say, when the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the pit, and there are none so blind as those who do not wish to see. Mention was made earlier of the astonishing apology made to the faithful by our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, in 1980. An even more astonishing admission was made only last year by the highest liturgical authority apart from the Pope himself. That is to say, the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Sacraments. In its official journal, Notizze, for October 1992, admitted that abuses have indeed been institutionalized. Thirty years, complains the editorial, are too many for an incorrect praxis, which in and of itself tends to be already fixed in place. The malformations born in the first years of the application still endure, and gradually, as new generations follow one another, could almost become a rule. 
Now, this is the supreme authority over the liturgy, the Pope apart, says that what started out as abuses have now become the norm. The editorial admits, and this is what's so astonishing, this editorial, written only last year, says, the credibility of the liturgical reform is being put in jeopardy. So now the Vatican is admitting this. I'll, I'll try and quote this in Italian, which in my Italian is probably worse than my French. La credibilità della riforma liturgica venga posta in pericolo. Now I would differ from this assessment of the Congregation for Divine Worship in the Sacraments. I don't think that the credibility of the liturgical reform is now in danger. I think that the credibility of the liturgical reform passed the situation of being in danger years ago. And any credibility that it ever possessed has been lost for decades. <laughs> As Archbishop Lefebvre expressed it, he said, and this is very, very profound. Almost everything that Archbishop Lefebvre said was very simple but very profound. Think about this. He said, our future lies in our past. The future of the Roman liturgy now lies in its past. And it, the, our liturgy will only have a future by restoring the traditional liturgy that has developed and endured for 19 centuries. And that must be the basis of the church's worship in the 21st century. Is that a complete illusion? Could it happen? Far from it. It now seems likely that at the turn of the century, in France at least, the majority of the faithful who assist at Mass on Sunday will be assisting at a Tridentine Mass. And where the eldest daughter of the church leaves, may not other countries follow. You would have been convinced that the future of the Roman Rite lies in its past if you could have been present in Chartres Cathedral on Pentecost Monday of this year and seen it packed the doors with young Catholics for a solemn high Tridentine Mass, which they sung in Latin... They sang in Latin with one voice, cum una voce, and with tremendous enthusiasm after marching more than 60 miles in three days and camping out at night. You would have been convinced that the future of the li Roman liturgy lies in its past if you'd seen the thousands of them outside who couldn't even find a place inside the cathedral. There are at least 15,000 present with an average age of 20. I was told that if I hadn't gone, the average age would probably have been about 15, but... Uh, <laughs> th th this is not an illusion, this is reality. And bear in mind that until last year, the doors of the cathedral had been shut in the face of these young pilgrims. But now they were welcomed with a message from the bishop and another from the Holy Father himself, assuring him of his prayers for their intentions, and the first of these intentions was the restoration of the Tridentine Mass. If, it'd be wonderful even if two, three or four people who are here today could come on that pilgrimage next year. If you want to read about it, there's a... I was going to say a very good article about it. I can't say that because I wrote it. There, there, <laughs> now, if you're British, you're never allowed to praise yourself. I was... I was very interested today, someone showed me a copy of the September magazine Fidelity. Some of you, most of you probably don't know this. I had a debate with this editor, uh, doctor, you have to call him doctor, Dr. Michael Jones, uh, I think on the 22nd of August. Uh, 
And it's not up to me to say who won it, but he's got an advert in the September Fidelity saying, read in the next issue how I won the debate. Uh, so, uh, so even if I thought I won it, being British, I wouldn't say so. Anyway, there's an illustrated article in this Latin Mass magazine. Anyone who would like to see it can come and have a look at it afterwards. Uh, there's a picture on the cover in which you can see the nave of Chartres Cathedral, the largest nave in the whole world, packed totally out with these young people. There's another photo inside in which you can see the side aisles and the transepts, the sanctuaries packed out. You can, the, the Remnant magazine organizes a pilgrimage from the United States, and if there were, I think, about 50 Americans this year, next year we'd like to make it perhaps 100 or 200, eventually to go into thousands. And one advantage of going, that, that a lot of people think of the French as very chauvinistic, uh, but they let all the people from abroad go to the front of the procession and you guaranteed a place in the cathedral right up at the front for the mass. Could you imagine 15,000 people with an average age of 20 marching 60 miles to bring back the new mass if that was abolished? Uh, if, yes. uh, I, I would imagine if you had a demonstration in favour of bringing back the new mass, you could have it in a telephone kiosk. But, so, and you'll be glad to know I'm getting to the end now. Uh, the critique of the new mass that I presented to you today has, I hope, been a legitimate exercise of the right accorded to every Catholic by Canon 212 of the Code of Canon Law to manifest to the sacred pastors his opinion on matters which pertain to the good of the Church and to make his opinion known to the other Christian faithful. See, in the old days, before the council, the only right of a layman, I believe, was to pray and to pay. But now, fine, the Second Vatican Council has granted us this right. This is your right. If you want to complain and your parish priest or your bishop says you can't, quote Canon 212 of the Code of Canon Law to him. You are entitled to manifest your opinion on matters which pertain to the good of the Church and also to make your opinion known to the other Christian faithful. I am absolutely sure that I am manifesting my love for and loyalty to the Church by suggesting with the utmost respect to our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, that the promulgation of the new Mass is something which, as the common father of all Christians, he should, to quote Dietrich von Hildebrand, regret and take back, and that, as Cardinals Ottaviani and Bacci requested, we should be given the possibility of continuing to have recourse to the fruitful integrity of that Missale Romanum of St. Pius V, which is as certain to be the mass of our children as it was certainly the mass of our fathers in the faith from at least the 6th century onwards. Again, you see, if we're a little radical, get to the radical meaning of loyalty. You all know the story of the emperor and the emperor's new clothes. Who was loyal to the emperor? All the people who said what wonderful clothes he had. If I could sing, I'd sing the little Danny Kaye version of it. Uh, or the little boy who said the king is in his altogether, altogether something or other. Uh, he had nothing on at all. And that, that's what the liturgical reform is. When you look at it, there's nothing. There's nothing there at all worthwhile. Are we supposed to keep saying to the Pope, oh, it's wonderful, Holy Father, we're inspired. 
We love the new mass. The Pope is our father. He's our shepherd. He, his duty under God, and he'll be punished if he doesn't do this. Those of you who've read Dandy's Inferno will read how many popes there were in hell in that book. Because the higher your position in the church, the greater your responsibility. His responsibility is that every Catholic should be able to go to their nearest church on Sunday and worship in a way that raises their hearts and minds to God. We shouldn't have to travel 20, 30, 40, 50 miles on Sunday to find a Tridentine Mass. The Pope is obliged to make this possible for us in our churches. So if the Mass that we get in our churches is doing the opposite for this, we have, as I've just said, we have not just the right, we've got the duty. We should say, Holy Father, look, it's all gone wrong. Give us back the Tridentine Mass. So let me conclude by quoting the words of Monsignor Klaus Gamber, whose book, as I mentioned to you, contains written endorsements by three cardinals, and who was, to quote Cardinal Ratzinger once more, considered to be the only liturgist worthy of the name in the church today with his unrivaled knowledge of the liturgy and the pastoral concern of a true good shepherd, this was the final message of Monsignor Gamber for the church that he had loved and served so well. I've quoted it to you once, I'll quote it to you once more. It is necessary that in the future the more than thousand-year-old rite of the Mass should be preserved in the Roman Catholic Church as the primary form of the celebration of Mass. It is essential that it becomes once more the norm of the faith and the sign of the unity of Catholics throughout the entire world. Thank you very much.